Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today is Brad Baldridge. Brad is a college funding specialist. He has helped thousands of families plan and save for college. Brad, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, Brad, excited to talk about this. Uh, I live in Eugene, Oregon, home to the University of Oregon. Also home, not many people know this, it's where the movie Animal House was filmed, maybe the, the quintessential college movie. They did talk a lot about 529 plans and, and funding college in Animal House. Maybe they were saving all that financial literacy for the sequel. So um, we'll, we'll cover what they didn't include in, in Animal House today. How's that sound, Brad? It sounds great. So let me start by asking you, kind of your um, zoomed out here, your framework. How do you view the, the college saving and the college planning process? Right. Yeah, so college planning is very much a process. Um, and it can kind of be divided into two stages. You know, we have what we call early stage and late stage. So early stage is, you know, you've got a toddler or even a fourth grader, seventh grader, whatever it might be, anything prior to high school typically. And you're saying, okay, college is coming. Maybe we should save and invest. Maybe we should plan, you know, some of that type of stuff. But then when we get to late stage, which is when you actually have a high school student, now, college planning, we're in the late stage. And late stage is, oh, my God, we're here. Now we have to visit schools and write essays and take tests and determine you know, what we want to be when we grow up. And there's lots to do. And even if you did a great job on your early stage, there's still a lot of late stage work to do. Now, ideally, you know, if you roll into it with some savings, that you know, makes life a little easier. But many of the people I'm working with roll in substantially short or even with zero. and it still can work out. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh my God, they get all stressed out about it. And, you know, start when you can and do the best you can and it'll, it should work out. But just realize that it's going to be a much bigger process once you get to the, to the late stage as well. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a quote that gets attributed to uh, a lot of different people, but um, start where you are, use what you have and and do what you can. I think it's on the wall at my, my gym, actually some motivation there um, probably yeah. applies to this as well. Uh, whether you're trying to, uh, to, to get in shape or to, to fund a college um, education, you got to start where you are. Right. Um, right. And um, so, so let's, let's talk about, I, I love that framework of thinking about this and we'll kind of revisit that throughout this conversation, the, the early and the, the late stage. Um, mm -hmm. let, let's talk a little bit about the, the 529 plan. I, you know, I'm curious how you view it. I view this as kind of the, the workhorse um, of a, a college saving plan can do can do a lot of work. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of folks are familiar, but for anyone who's not, can you give an overview of, of the 529 plan? Certainly. So the 529 plan is a college savings vehicle that came into existence because of some arcane tax code, 529 is where you go look it up. And uh, so they figured out a way to build some loopholes and get some tax favored growth for college. And then as it, you know, people started using it and it worked, well, then it became a very formal plan. And then all the states out there created a 529. And a 529 is similar to a 401k or other 
retirement vehicle in that you usually you have a list of investment choices and you pick from the list. So a lot of the exotic investments that some people might think they want, you know, Bitcoin and that kind of stuff generally is not available. It's going to be just your your standard core of typical mutual funds and ETF type investing. Mm -hmm. um, but the big advantages are all taxes. Yeah. So it grows tax deferred. And if you take it out and spend it on college, it's tax still tax free. So you can now you but you generally you don't get any federal deductions when you put it in. Right. Right. So and then on top of that, you may get state tax benefits. So states that have taxes, first of all. So like Texas and Florida don't have taxes, so there's nothing to save there. But in many states, like here in Wisconsin, up to you know, but thirty eight hundred or four thousand. It's a moving target because it it's indexed with inflation. But the first four thousand you put in is Wisconsin state tax deductible. Yep. So it saves you a couple hundred dollars in taxes by contributing to the Wisconsin plan. Right. Um, other states but have much bigger, you know, limits, and a lot of some states have very small limits. So you really have to understand your state. Yep. Yeah, I want to circle back to that that state issue because that's a, a question that I get a lot. Great point about the the tax benefits. Brad did a nice job of summarizing it. So I've got a five two nine plan for this little guy over here. He's he's eleven months old. So I guess I'm in the the early phase of of planning for my son, mm -hmm. Brad. So you know the investments in his five two nine plan they get dividends, they get interest payments. I don't have to pay taxes on that. It's tax free growth. Um, so that's one benefit. And then as Brad mentioned, down the road. 17, 18 years from now, when I go to pull that money out, as long as I'm using it for qualified education expenses, it's a tax-free withdrawal. So I'm not going to pay capital gains tax, other taxes that would would eat away um, at that withdrawal. So those are kind of the, the two tax benefits, I think, the tax-free growth, the tax-free withdrawals, if it's qualified. And then Brad mentioned there's the potential even for a, a third tax benefit up front. A lot of nuance there because, of course, every state has to put their own uh, their own spin on it. Um, but but that's kind of the the, the quick summary of the um, of the tax benefits. Brad, let's jump in and talk about. I know the state thing confuses a lot of people. They say, you know, I'm in Oregon, you're in Wisconsin. All the states have their own plan, and they try to figure out: Do I need to open my state's plan? Should I open my state's plan? Should I just go with a Vanguard plan? I like Vanguard. How do you help people navigate that issue? Right. Yeah. So it really starts with what state are you in and are there any benefits to your home state? Mm -hmm. If there are, most plans now are reasonably good plans where I think the state benefit would probably trump what you would get by going to some other state. You know, so if you're in, I don't know, Vermont and you get a little bit of a tax benefit. In the past, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't uncommon for advisors to say, you know, the investments in this particular plan are so bad, they're so expensive, whatever, yeah. that yes, you get a little bit of a state benefit, but you're much better off to go somewhere else because of cost or whatever, because that state benefit doesn't even outweigh the the negatives of this plan. Yep. Those days, yeah. I think, are pretty much gone. Most yeah, states they've... have now cleaned up their plans and and gotten them reasonably competitive. So now, you know, every plan's an A minus or an A or a B plus. Yeah, and a good way to put it. A lot of downward fee pressure. Good thing for consumers has kind of kind of helped everyone. Right. Um, so, so Brad, you were just mentioning there's a huge range. We're not going to go through all 50 states here. It's kind of something you need to dive into. Um, right. Everyone's different. You mentioned that you know if, if your state doesn't have an income tax, you don't get any benefit because it doesn't do you any good to to have a, a 
to tax deductible contributions. There's a handful of states, I think New Mexico, Colorado, South Carolina, West Virginia, I think they have unlimited uh, deductions. So you're able to deduct all your contributions against your state income tax. Some states don't let you take any deduction. Uh, my state, Oregon, actually has a, a credit. So it's, you know, lets you kind of the same place, but via a different mechanism. Right. Um, every place is a little bit different. So personally, I, I did do an Oregon plan. I'm getting that $300 credit each year. I did exactly what you said. I looked at the plan. I said, these expense ratios are, are pretty competitive. They're pretty low. There's everything I'd want here. The menu of available funds looks great. Everything I could possibly want is available here. I'm going to open an Oregon plan so I can get the $300 credit. You know, not, not a big, huge move in the needle, but um, you know, over the course of, of several years, that's going to add up to several thousand dollars in tax credits that I'm going to get because I, with my state's plan, as opposed to um, an out-of-state plan. Right. And here's where people really need to understand is in order to have the discipline to have college savings, you're going to want to set up a separate account somewhere where you say that's college money. I can't mm -hmm. spend that on a boat or I can't spend that because we want a vacation or whatever it is. That's college money. Yeah. Once you segregate it, then you say, well, what should I segregate it into? Well, then the next step is, well, why wouldn't I use a 529? Yes, it's a small benefit, but a small benefit's better than no benefit. And I've got to set up an account anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Again, for so for a lot of people, you know, I hear a lot of times people say, Well, it's too late. I've got a high school junior or something like that, where it's like, well. If we're going to set up college savings, we may as well use a 529. It's not any easier or harder to set up a 529 versus a just a general investment account or whatever. So, you know, there's not a real strong reason not to use a 529. Yeah. Um, once you say, well, I got to set up something. Um, yeah. There's a rare instance, I think, where people are just maybe paying for college out of cash flow or something where they, you know, if you're the brain surgeon making $3 million a year and you say, I'm just going to write a check for college, I don't want to deal with it. Great. But that's not, you know, that's not your listener, probably. And that's not the average listener where, sure. you know, do what you can to you mentioned a couple thousand dollars. Well, if you can save a couple thousand dollars doing this instead of that. And with college planning, there's a lot of that where if we do this instead of that, we get a little more aid. If we do this instead of that, we save some interest on our loans. If we do this instead of that, then the student earns a little more money. And all of a sudden, a thousand here and there adds up to 10 and 20 and 30,000 over the course yeah. of college. And then it's real savings. So it's, you know, for a lot of families, it is those kind of that pick and choose and do what you can where you can. And uh, so, yeah, so 529s are often a core planning opportunity, whether it's early stage or late stage. And then occasionally we're going to supplement it, just kind of put it out there where it's not the only game in town. So sometimes we tack on a, a Roth IRA or a taxable account of some sort because we don't want to put all our eggs in the college basket, especially when parents are like, well, we don't know for sure they're going, or we already have 150,000 saved. And if they go to this school, we've got enough. But if we go to that school, we don't have enough. We want to save more, but we don't want to commit it to college because we don't know yet. You know, so yeah. then you might add a Roth or add, you know, but most of the time the 529 is doing the heavy lifting when it comes to college planning. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Brad, this this good problem to have, right, of, of I, I call it like an overfunded 529. You get to the point where, for whatever reason, um, maybe your portfolio did really well. Um, maybe the cost of college goes way down. I mean, that's not going to happen, but we can we can pretend, right? Or Your student rocks scholarship scholarships. The, yeah, they, they decide they want to go to a, a trade school. It's not going to cost as much as you thought. A lot of reasons. Again, good problem to have. 
end up with and this leftover money, you've got an, an overfunded 529, uh, 529. What options do folks have there? Because I talk to people who are concerned about that, right? Uh, what if I end up with too much money in there? Can I get it out? Is it just stuck? Um, how do you answer that question? How do you alleviate that concern? Yeah. So in general, you can take it out. There's not a, a big... Now, you're going to pay taxes and penalties if you take it out for the non-college expenses. Yep. So... And it's 10% federal, and then your state might claw back some of those benefits they gave you earlier when you put it in if you didn't spend it on college. But there's also a lot of safety valves and exceptions to that having to pay penalties. So mm -hmm. the big ones would be you can change the beneficiary. So, you know, parents of multiple kids, you move the leftovers, you know, you can shift it from one student to the other. And, uh, you know, so if one doesn't need it all, you can just shift it to the next one and they can spend it or whatever it might be. Um, you can also shift it within the family so you can go up a generation or down a generation. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of families that, you know, they're on track to, you know, have a solid retirement. They're going to have their 2 million for retirement or 3 million or whatever the number is. If 50,000 of that was stuck in a 529 for some future need that hasn't been identified yet, it's not the end of the world. Most of the time they're saying, well, it's going to go to my kids and then they can spend it on the grandkids. And if right. they can't use it up, then they can spend it on the great grandkids. Um, and you can also shift it to, you know, nieces and nephews. And so there's lots of just changing beneficiaries, but, and again, some families, maybe you're not, you're a little opposed to that where you want to be more is efficient where you're saying, I don't want to have, you know, 20,000 left over that has to wait 25 years for the next generation. Yeah. If if that's the case, you can also take it out to pay student loans up to 10,000 per beneficiary. And you can starting in 2024, you can shift it into a Roth IRA for the beneficiary if the account has been around long enough. So it's got to be like I think it's like 15 years old, so it's got to be around right. for a long time. Um so if you if you're doing the early stage planning and you started something for your 4-year-old, you know, you already got 14 years in by the time they're 18, by the time they are through college and haven't used it up, you know, you've got that under your belt. Um, but even if not, or even if you didn't wait until 17, right? When the kids are about 30, you still can roll it into their Roth IRA. Right. You can change yeah, that's the a, a great escape patch that's coming in. I think it's as, as part of the Secure 2.0, uh, right. being able to roll, roll part of it into a Roth. I think you made a, a great point, though. Brad, and that's my perspective is, you know, if, if you're in this position, fortunate enough to be in this position, that being able to change the, the beneficiary, um, you know, that, that's a sufficient backup plan in, in my mind, or that's a, a great way to use this. I know some people think like, well, how can I get my money out of this? I kind of look at it the other way. I'd turn that on its head with a tax advantaged account. I think the question you should be asking is, how can I keep my money in here for longer, right? You don't have required minimum distributions like you do with a traditional IRA, um great news i can just pass this on to instead of my kid it goes to the grandkid fantastic i'll keep taking that tax-free growth i'll keep experiencing that that tax-free compounding um you know the, the longer you can keep money in a, in a, a tax advantage account the better in some ways so again i realize this is um is, is a nice problem to have but um i kind of flip that flip that on its head and say great just keep kicking it down the road down to the next generation yes absolutely yeah. So and again, so there's lots of ways to take it out. And then that's where you also more aggressively pair it with something that's not college. So you do more with a Roth IRA or more mm -hmm. with a taxable account if you're worried about having a lot of leftovers. 
when it gets down to actually doing the planning, I think it's very rare that someone doesn't can't figure it out. Because another important thing to realize is if you have the qualified expense, even if you're not paying the qualified expense, you can take the money out. So if the students take have 20,000 of tuition, which is a qualified expense, and the student mm -hmm. borrows $20,000 to pay that expense, you're still eligible to take 20,000 out of your 529. You don't yeah. have to give it to the kids and pay the bill with it. You can just take it out and do something else with it because the bill is already covered. So yeah. that leads us to some advanced planning, which is what I would call cycling. So in states where you get benefits for putting the money in, then you should take out all your qualified expenses out of the 529. And I have hmm. people say, well, wait a minute, there's not enough in there to take it all out. Well, then you got to put more in. And every time you put more in, then you get more tax deductions. And you pay the bill anyway. Yeah, right, right, right. So even if you took a loan to pay the bill, if you have, you can take out 20,000 you don't need, we'll take it out, put it back in if you're still mm -hmm. short, right? If you still got lots of college in the future, you say take it out, put it back in. Now I have more contributions and I get more tax deductions. And now that, you know, that's cycling. So we can get into the very advanced planning where we say, all right, how do we leverage this? And again, is this going to cover the cost of college? No. But if it saves you 7,000 instead of 3,000 because you did it this way, why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's just, you have to understand how it works and, and take advantage of it. Yeah. Great. I, I love that idea of cycling. I, I hadn't heard of that, but it, it it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think people listening, you, you've made them some money. You helped them save a little bit more here. Um, let's talk, Brad, about, about one other good problem to have. If you're able to do, there's something called super funding, a 529. Um, can you explain explain what that is? And um, again, good good problem to have to be in the position to, to consider this. But how do you think about that when your your clients are, are in that position? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no official definition of super funding, but the way I understand, you know, what I'm what I see around that is you're just putting in a lot more than you know you're going to need because you like all the tax advantages that we just talked about. So the maximum you can put into a 529 is typically what a four-year education at the most expensive school they could find is. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 400, 500,000 where they say, well, you know, again, if you had, if you went to the most expensive school and had to pay for the whole thing, it's, you know, 80,000 a year, 90,000 a year now. And with inflation, so we'll allow you to put in a half million dollars, let's say, is with the limit at many, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. So if you've got, you know, you've just won the lottery and you've got multi-millions and you don't know what to do with it, some families would say, okay, well, let's just super fund a 529 and put in a half million for every beneficiary. And then what are we going to do with it? Well, we don't know yet, but we're going to let it grow tax deferred and we're going to take it out tax-free for education. And you could then for many generations say, well, it's going to be there for people to take it out, you know, on and on and on. And then again, you can also say, and then occasionally you could take it out and pay taxes and penalties. Sure. I've seen yeah. situations where very high income families that are in the 30 some percent federal and high state will say, I will have my kids take it out and pay the taxes and penalties at their rates. So they pay you know, 15% federal and 10% penalty is 25. That's still a lot better than my 30, whatever, plus state plus whatever. So yep. sometimes, again, it can be a, let's set up a 
you know, like a kind of an account that's going to cover many generations, you know, like a grandparent just sold a business. They have $15 million. They don't know what to do with, they take a million of it and they drop it into 529s for the grandkids. And they do the math and say, well, the grandkids won't get this spent. Then I guess it'll roll to the next generation. Yeah. And if they can't get it spent because it grows in the meantime, well, that's great. And then they can pass it to the next generation. Yeah. And, and you, you, you'll run into some, there's some thresholds here. I think for an individual that the limit is 17,000 for a couple, it's 34,000. I think that you can make, but before counting against the, the estate, uh, lifetime Correct. estate exclusion. Yeah. And there's yeah, a little so wrinkle where you can, you can do five years at once. So five times 34,000, let's do my math here, but I think that's 170,000. Um, it's kind of the max that you could do in one year. And then you've got to wait five years before being able to do it again. But that's a pretty if, big chunk compared right. to, you know, a, a Roth IRA, you can put in $6,500. That's a kind of a, a huge number um, that you can potentially fund outside of the the lifetime uh, estate and gift tax exemption uh, in right. one year. So another nice and, benefit. And, and again, for, and for a lot of families, you don't really care about that limit because if unless your estate is over the 11 million or whatever the maximum sure. is, you're not paying taxes anyway. So yes, if you put 100,000 in all in one year, technically you have to file a gift tax return. And again, recipients never pay taxes. It's the people that did the gifting. Right. You file a tax return and say, well, I, I put in a hundred, I'm going to use up some of my 11 million. Yep. I don't pay taxes. I just have to do the paperwork. Sure. And then going forward from there, you know, if you have a large estate, you'll have to pay taxes. But if you stay under the 11 million or where, and then the other potential risk because they changed that limit on us, right? It's sure. And that that number has moved around a lot. It's been as low as 600,000 and as high as where it is now, 11 or 12 million. So yeah. depending on, you know, political winds of the time, it may or may not be the same. So just keep that in mind, I guess. Yeah. The other, the other wrinkle I'd add there is, is the state threshold can differ quite a bit. Uh, for example, I, I mentioned a couple of times now I live in Oregon. I think we have the lowest threshold in the country. It's a million dollars. Um, so uh, if, if you live in a state like I do, Washington is pretty low. Minnesota is pretty low. Some, some states don't have uh, an estate or gift tax at all. Another thing where it's just all over the board. So, uh, looking at that too, if you're in a, um, a low limit state, uh, maybe it becomes more relevant, uh, and you're more likely to get over that, that threshold. Um, kind of like we were talking about earlier, there's 50 states and a, a whole, whole host of different situations in, in all of them. Um, Brad, I, I want to talk about, um, a, a couple more things here. Um, prepaid tuition plans, something that I, I don't know a lot about. Um, I think maybe not as widely used or widely available. How do you compare folks interested in for folks interested in, in prepaid tuition plans versus funding, I guess, the more traditional route of a 529? Yeah. Yeah. So I I in general don't like the prepaid tuition plans mm -hmm. um because I've seen a lot of the quote unquote horror stories of okay. Well, I lived in Florida. I paid for two years, but now we live in Oregon. Now I can go to Florida for for low cost, or I can take out the equivalent value. Which and then you start doing the math, and you go, "Huh, this equivalent value means my growth rate was, you know, one point four percent." Yeah, it's like, oh, right. So, and then what? The other premise of a prepaid plan is I'm going to buy credits today at today's prices so that I don't have to buy them in the future prices. Well, that assumes then that there's going to be large inflation in the cost of college. And that isn't necessarily the case because college has had very high inflation 
up until the last three or four or five years where it's finally gotten to the point where people just are saying it's not worth it at that price. So a lot of colleges where they've raised prices, they've also raised scholarships or other ways to ultimately lower the price. Um, so a lot of states are putting in um, help that that's need based and and various ways. And then on top, and a lot of private schools, you know, they continue to raise their price, but then they raise the scholarship right along with it. So the net price of college is not growing as fast as it has been. Sure. So. But and the jury's still out with this new round of inflation that's been going on. It's hard to know if colleges will be able to actually, you know, their costs are going up for sure. But I don't know if they're going to be able to pass it through because they've been raising their prices so quickly already that they've already hit the ceiling. So we'll have to wait and see what what happens. Um, yep. So that's one issue. The other issue again is you're kind of tying yourself to a state that you may or may not be interested in in the long run. Um and they're not very efficient unless you buy them very young. Sometimes there's even a financial situ financing situation where it's like, well, I could buy a year's worth of college if I had $15,000 today. I don't. So I'll sign up for a payment plan. Well, by the time you pay interest on the payment plan and you do the math and you go, okay, well, I, you know, there is no benefit, really. You add up all my contributions and had I put it in the bank, I would have done better. Um, yep. So there's a lot of gotchas in them. And not to say that there isn't a good plan out there. Um, there are, you know, there are a couple of good ones, but in the end, why? I mean, what, you know, what benefit do you think you're really locking down? And again, if you're a typical investor where you say, well, you know, what have the market's done and that kind of stuff. As soon as you look at market, true market rates compared to what they're offering, I, you know, I, again, I don't think they're, that useful? Yeah, I, I kind of reach the same conclusion. You know, it's, it's tough to predict, especially if you're in, you know, you talk about the early and late, late planning stages. Someone like me, right. who's in the early planning stage, I look at it and I think, I, man, I don't know what the world's going to look like 17, 18 years from now. Um, 529, you know, it's essentially an, an investment portfolio, a lot more, essentially a lot more flexibility. Um, it's kind of the conclusion that I reach. It sounds like we're of a, a similar mindset on that, Brad, of the benefits of, of 529 worth having that flexibility versus kind of locking something in. Um, right. And a number yeah. of states, their, their prepaid plans have essentially collapsed where yeah. they, you know, the funding wasn't there and the prices were raised so quickly that the money isn't in the plan anymore. And now the state has to bail it out. And I mean, so Illinois has been, and then they relaunch a new plan and they kind of, because it's untenable. And so again, I've seen a lot of messes. I've seen situations where people were able to take out the money they contributed and it was more valuable than the benefit of using it to pay for school. So yeah. they added up all their contributions and they could walk away with 75,000, essentially a zero interest situation. Yeah. But the benefit would have paid for a lower cost state school and would have only been 70,000 or 65,000. So they're better off to take their money and then just pay for school with the cash. Okay. Yeah. Um, good, good, good example. And you look there. at that and say, well, that was not a very good situation at all. If all they got was their own money back over, if they'd have invested in any, with anything with a rate of return, they would have been much better off. Right. Right. So 
Brad, a couple more questions for you here. Someone who's listening to this or, or watching this and they're saying, this all sounds great. I, I wish I knew about this earlier. I'm in the, the late stage. College is coming up uh, for my family. W what advice do you give to people who are in that boat where they they kind of feel like they're behind or they feel like they, they wish they'd done more? What do you what do you say to those folks? Yeah, so I mean, late stage college planning is a process. Um, there's the the tactics, right? I'm going to use this five twenty nine and do this, and I save a thousand dollars. And if I do this, then I can do that, and I save a thousand dollars. But there's also kind of the broader, as a family, how much are parents going to pay for college, and how much are the students going to pay? And then is that reasonable, right? A lot of parents say things like, "Well, we're not going to pay for anything." It's like, okay, well, then your student's probably not going to college because I haven't seen a typical college student that can raise $20,000 a year to pay for a state school and do, you know, well, that's what I did. It's like, okay, well, the times have changed. Sorry. Um, you know, a 50-year-old person that went to college 30 years ago, yes, maybe you could work your way through school. It's really hard to do that now. Yeah. And if you earn enough to disqualify your student from need-based aid, and then you you know turn them out and say they're on their own. Well, they're not going to get need-based aid, and they're not going to get help from you, and they're going to be stuck. So that's the you know one important thing to realize is it is a family process, and parents that have means are expected to help. They don't have to, right? But in the end, then the student may it's may end up not going. Um, then the next level is well, again. If you're willing to help, how much are you willing to help and how are you going to be fair among the kids and, you know, what's a realistic cost? And, you know, when we talk about early stage, as you mentioned, you've got a, uh, what sounds like about a one-year-old now, um, what's college going to look like in the future? Well, it, I've been saying for the last 10 years, college is ripe for change. It hasn't really happened yet, but it is starting to, and some, you know, COVID moved a few things along. Yeah. Um, in the adult education, there's a lot of different things. Um, but you have to realize, as an example, less than half the students that attend college right now are the typical rolled out of high school, went directly to college, living on a campus kind of undergrad. That's less than half. Mm -hmm. The other half is adult learners and kids that are living at home and doing their own thing and online. All that stuff is starting to get some traction. Now, I think me as a parent and probably you as a parent, I went to college. I loved it. I am currently paying probably more than I should, but so that my kids can have the college experience Yep. because that's important to me. And because there's parents like us, that's why they can raise prices, right? Is because well, if they raise the price, I'm going to figure out how to save more so I can still make it happen. And but it has started to price out for some families, but I mean, that's the reality of it. So yeah. there's going to be that segment, but I think there's going to be some other segments of education that are going to fill in some of the gaps, like it has happened for the adult learners where hybrid online and on campus or completely online or, you know, nights and weekends or all these different programs. And again, the typical undergrad, you know, where you go as the student and you, you know, the college just says, this is the way it works and you have to live with it. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm the customer. Why aren't you doing what I want? You know, college doesn't work that way right now. Um, but I think it might where some colleges are going to say, we're going to have to do things differently in order to be 
have a customer where, you know, our differentiation is going to be, we're not like the rest. Right. We're do it differently. And it'll be a good fit for enough students that will, you know, will attract a good class and be able to do it. So, um, you know, as an example, they're experimenting with three-year college in a couple mm-hmm. locations. And it's not taking four years of material and squeezing it into three years. They're redesigning the major and saying, this is just going to be a three-year major. Maybe we don't need to have four years for every major, for every topic. You know, who you know who officially said you got to have a four-year degree? What's wrong with a three-year degree or a five-year degree? I mean, and again, they're, so they're starting to, you know, experiment and do things differently so yeah starting to be disrupted i think a lot of folks would agree college is an industry that's that's right for disruption it's kind of it's pretty entrenched it's going to take a while but um it's starting to happen around the edges at least so uh last question for you brad folks who want to get in touch with you interested in in working with you where can they find more about you and get in touch yes yeah so i have a all my information is at taming the high cost of college.com so you can go there and you can reach, you know, get a phone number or send me a message or reach out directly. We also have a free email newsletter. Got about 150 episodes of a podcast all about college. So, you know, lots and lots of stuff around that stuff. Um, we've got a college money report where you can put in some of your academic statistics and financial statistics and get an estimate of how need-based and merit-based aid may work at, at individual colleges. So a lot of free resources, and then ultimately, if you want to, you know, reach out and have someone help you, we can do that as well. Okay, great. I'll make sure uh, that that link is in the show notes, um, so you can get in touch with with Brad easily. Um, Brad, thanks for coming on here. I don't know that um, this is going to get picked up as a screenplay for Animal House Two, um, but <laughs> we we certainly uh, you provided a ton of great information uh, for me for our audience. Um, so I think that's more important uh, what we accomplished here today. So uh, thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.